This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 12th of November 2022 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday, the 12th of November. Coming up, the former diplomat, Lou Lukens, will join us to unpack the results of the midterms and what the result means for the US and the rest of the world. Also ahead, the Russia analyst and regular Monocle contributor, Stephen DL, will be here to review the day's papers, including developments in Ukraine. And a bit later on today's programme, the director of Dubai Design Week, Kate Barry, will tell us why why the festival is flourishing. I love the idea that Dubai is nurturing this scene and that it's become something now to say, oh, I got it in Dubai. <laughs> so it's that movement that gets me excited. That's all ahead here on Monocle on Saturday with me, Georgina Godwin. First, here's the headlines. In the United States midterm elections, incumbent Democrat and former astronaut Mark Kelly defeated Republican Blake Masters on Friday to win a Senate seat in Arizona, a contest that left Democrats one seat short in the battle for control of the chamber, with two more races to be decided. Jubilant residents welcomed Ukrainian troops arriving in the centre of Kherson on Friday after Russia abandoned the only regional capital it had captured since its invasion began in February. Thousands of Iranians protested in the rest of southeast on Friday to mark a September the 30th crackdown by security forces known as Bloody Friday as the country's clerical rulers battled persistent nationwide unrest. And US President Joe Biden told the COP27 climate conference in Egypt on Friday that global warming posed an existential threat to the planet and promised the United States would meet its targets for fighting it. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Well, picking up off the back of that news bulletin, we're going to begin today's programme by unpacking this week's US midterms. President Joe Biden's Democrats performed far better than many had anticipated, and he's also said that he plans to run again in 2024. His predecessor, Donald Trump, has also signalled his intention to stand. Well, we'll get the latest now with the former US diplomat, Louis Lukens. Lou is now a senior partner at Signum Global Advisors. Lou, good morning to you. Good morning, Georgina. So these results uh, keep coming through, and uh, I guess this uh, latest one from Arizona is definitely food for thought. What do you make of that? Well, it, w- it wasn't completely unexpected because Mark Kelly was running ahead. They just hadn't counted enough of the votes to call the race yet, but they, they did finally a couple of hours ago. So it, it just highlights the fact that, that the control of the Senate really comes down to two races now, to Nevada and Georgia. Um, Georgia, we won't know until December 6th when they had their runoff election, in Nevada, we should know any day, but the two candidates there are within, I think they're within a thousand votes of each other right now. It's an extremely close race. Why did that Republican red wave never happen? Well, it's hard to say. I think people misunderestimated or miscalculated how much the Supreme Court decision overturning a woman's right to abortion would motivate voters. And a lot of the polling before the election showed that abortion was sort of the number five issue on people's minds after the economy and inflation and crime and immigration. 
but polling after the election showed that it was actually the second most important issue on people's minds. So there, there was the pollsters missed that, and I think that motivated a lot of Democrats, especially Democratic women, to come out and vote. I also think Donald Trump's um, sort of inserting himself into the election was not helpful. And I think many, even on the Republican side, would say that it was not helpful. They may not say it out loud, but there's a general sense that having Donald Trump um, campaigning for candidates, for his candidates, most of whom lost, um, and the way he did it and, you know, his rallies, but making it all about himself and his complaints and his, you know, his lies about the last election ended up sort of taking some of the enthusiasm for his candidates away. And do you think that he will, as planned, uh, announce that he'll run again? You know, I think he will. I mean, I think he's he's it would be too humiliating for him almost at this point to change his mind. He's made it very clear that he plans this big announcement this coming Tuesday in from Mar-a-Lago in Florida. Um, I, I, I suspect he will announce. Um, but what I think will happen, Georgina, is I think other he's he's his, his standing is definitely diminished after the election on Tuesday. So that will embolden other Republicans who may have been hesitant but it'll it'll embolden them to now also come out and run for president and challenge to challenge Donald Trump in the Republican primaries. Um, first and foremost, of course, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, who had a very strong um, election night in in Florida, won re-election by huge margins and did extremely well. Um, but others also, and I think as they enter the race along with Donald Trump, Donald Trump's numbers will go down. Um, people will see that there are viable alternatives to run the party. To Donald Trump. And I think at some point he will realize he's not going to win and he won't want to lose again and he'll drop out. And so do, do you think that means he's actually lost his grip on, on the GOP? Are the Republicans no longer wedded to him? I think it's a little early to say there is that hardcore group of Trump supporters that will that they would follow him to the ends of the earth. And, and what, they don't care what happened last week. They will buy into his conspiracy theories and his spin on the situation. But I think certainly the donor class, which is very important in the Republican Party, um, the, the people who write the big checks to candidates, they are putting distance between themselves and Trump. And, and you have to have that money. Elections in America are expensive. And without big money, I mean, you can raise a lot of money off the 30 percent core base that loves you, but they don't have the big dollars. You need the big donors behind you if you're going to be successful running for president. And I don't think Trump has those donors behind him right now. Mm. Of course, his his big point is that the last election was stolen from him. Uh, and I wonder how many of those election deniers that agree with him uh, got in and might actually challenge the results. Well, the good news is not that many. A lot of the election deniers that he supported and that, that ran on that platform that if they had been in power two years ago, they would not have certified the election for Joe Biden, um, did not win. There, there's one key race, the governorship of Arizona, which is still undecided. The two candidates are within you know, 20,000, 30,000 votes of each other, um, and they're still counting the votes. Um, but Kerry Lake, the Republican challenger to the Democratic uh, governor there, is very much of a Trump acolyte and, and, and an election denier. So if she ends up winning, um, she would be in a position possibly to, to um, not certify results in two years, say. Uh, but in general, the election deniers across the country um, were not successful on Tuesday. And it, it's, it's, it's a good sign for this, the state of American democracy, I think. Mm-hmm. How will this uh, election result influence the rest of the world? Is it significant? 
I think it's significant in a couple of ways. It's significant because, as I just said, I think it reinforces the notion that American democracy is stable. I mean, not just that the election deniers didn't win most of their races on Tuesday, but also that there weren't challenges, there weren't fights outside polling stations. I mean, everything went smoothly and seemed to operate well. And and the losers so far haven't you know filed court cases. They haven't challenged the results the way many people expected we would see this year. So I think the fact that American democracy seems to have sort of gone back to a more stable position, I think, is an important signal to the world. It it also it shows a little bit of continuity in Joe Biden's policies, which I think a lot of our allies and partners around the world will be looking to. It gives him, even though the president has sort of ultimate authority over foreign policy and doesn't really need Congress, the fact that Congress will be more supportive of his policies than than had there been a red wave. Um, I think is also an important signal to our allies that they can expect a little bit more continuity and consistency from this administration, at least for the next two years. Mm. I mean, just just looking at how the U.S. influences the U.K., it, it seems to me that the Tory party here copies the, the Trump playbook uh, and, and that people are willing to ignore facts uh, and, and just parrot fiction. Do you think that's going to change? I don't. And I I mean, I hope I'm not painting too rosy a picture of American democracy. I mean, we still have election deniers and we still have people who who peddle fake news. And there's still a huge appetite for that in in America. So um, and I think it's the same thing that we see here in the UK. And and it's it's the result, I think, of sort of alternate universes of of media, alternate news sources. um, And people get wrapped up in their information bubbles, um, thanks mostly to social media and Twitter and Facebook and all those apps where you're sort of steered toward people who think like you. And, and, and I think it puts people in silos where they're less willing to, to consider facts beyond what they think is true. And we see that in the United States. We see that here in the UK. We see it across the world, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, if you had to call it now, where's this going? The, the U.S. races? Yes. So I think, I think, um, I think there's a chance that Democrats win Nevada, the Senate race, in which case they've, they've got control of the Senate. They don't even need to win in Georgia. Um, I think they will win in Georgia. So I think the Democrats will end up controlling the Senate either 50-50 or 51-49. So pretty much essentially what they've had the last two years. I think the Republicans will end up controlling the House. They're still um, right now they have um, 211 seats confirmed one to 201 seats for the Democrats. So only a 10 seat difference, but you need 218 to control the House. So the Republicans only need seven more seats, and there are about 20 seats that are still undecided. So, um, you know, that, that will continue to be very close, but I think the Republicans will end up controlling the House, but by a very, very small margin, which will make the, the Republican leader, Kevin McCarthy's job, very, very difficult. He's going to have to deal with the Freedom Caucus, which is, you know, a combination of um, the old Tea Party, small government, but now with a heavy dose of Trump, MAGA, isolationist, and and they will um, make lots of demands on him as a leader, which will be very difficult for him to meet. Lou, thank you very much indeed. That was the former US diplomat, Louis Lukens. Well, we're going to have a look at the papers now with the Russia analyst and regular Monocle 24 contributor, Stephen Diel, right after this.
Stephen Diel, welcome. Congratulations for negotiating my dog, who's very excited to see you. Very excited indeed. I just got my foot caught in the lead, in fact. <laughs> Nearly fell into the chair in the studio. But I enjoyed the first oh, for something. Dear, dear. Sit. <laughs> Both of Me. you. Me. <laughs> um, Stephen, it's no laughing matter. Although some uh, cause for jubilation in Hurston, uh, because, of course, that city has been taken back. Tell us more. Well, um, it's not just Hurston, but uh, it's the whole... Oblast, the whole region, which um, is causing great joy in Ukraine. I'm slightly nervous in that um, it, it all looks terribly good. You can't look at a newspaper this morning or go on a website without seeing celebrating Ukrainians, which is wonderful. They're in they're in Kherson in particular, um, waving Ukrainian flags and greeting soldiers back. It's like scenes from liberation in the Second World War. Um, but the reason I'm slightly nervous is that uh, it's... Yes, perhaps it's a battle one, but the war has yet to be won. And when it's important to look at the geography, look at the map, and see that Kherson is basically on what's called the right bank, the western bank of the river Dnipro. Uh, the Russians have pulled back to the left bank. Now, that river is pretty wide and is quite a, uh, quite a form of defence for them. Um, so it's, uh, and also um, one of the last things the Russians did when they got there, estimated 30,000 troops over onto the, uh, the, the left bank, was blow up the main bridge. Um, apparently, from a satellite photo, it's in just one place, but obviously um, a long bridge like that, they would have to be very careful if they repaired it and before they could use it. So um, that's why it's almost sort of two cheers. It's not three cheers yet, um, but it does suggest the war's going in the right way. And as I say, it's not just Kherson itself. There's a wonderful report here uh, in the um, uh, this morning's New York Times, um, particularly focusing on a village called Snihurivka, um, in the Herson region, uh, pictures of uh, two old ladies waving to soldiers as they come in, uh, an abandoned Russian truck with the, the Z marking on it. I mean, th th this has caused so much mirth, actually, this Z marking, because it's similar to a swastika. Um, and, of course, as the longer this war has gone on, the more that the Russians have been compared to the Nazi invaders in the Second World War and the Ukrainians are being compared to the Soviet defenders. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting, isn't it? Um, in terms of the Russian withdrawal, we've heard reports of uh, Russian troops drowning in the river and of utter chaos as they withdraw. Yeah, apparently that, that, is, that has taken place as well. Um, bear in mind, I mentioned the bridge. Um, there aren't many bridges at that point. Across the across the river Dnipro, and so therefore they will have tried to get their troops over quickly. It's interesting how quickly, because earlier in the week, when there was talk that the Russians might withdraw, and then on Wednesday they announced they were withdrawing from Kherson. The Russians officially announced. Um, the Western analysts tend to be saying, well, this could take weeks, it could take a long time. Obviously, the Russians have actually thought, we've got to get out of here as fast as possible because they've seen what's been happening elsewhere in the, in the region, in the oblast, um, the advances that the Ukrainians have made. And yes, there are reports of, um, of Russian soldiers actually just trying to get across, maybe even trying to swim across, which unless you, even if you're a very powerful swimmer, would be very difficult because it is a wide river. And so, yes, soldiers have drowned. There's also reports of other Russian soldiers who've 
put on civilian clothes and they're trying to pretend that they're actually local residents, which they'll probably be found out pretty quickly. Mm. Um, so there is an element of chaos. And also something which is particularly interesting here, I think, is that, as I say, on Wednesday they announced the, the withdrawal, but it was done by the military. Um, uh, it was uh, General Surovikin and the Defence Minister Sergei Shoigu uh, Surovikin has recently been put in charge of all operations in uh, in Ukraine, but no President Putin. President Putin is the commander in chief of the Russian army of the Russian armed forces, um, and he's completely distanced himself from this. Now, this won't have gone gone unnoticed uh, by Russians, uh, Russians who for the last twenty years have been bombarded with propaganda and more and more to feel, feel that. Putin is like a, another czar, like the father of the nation. Um, of course, not so long ago, the constitution was changed so that he can basically rule for the rest of his life. Um, and suddenly these major decisions are being taken without him being present. Um, and that definitely sends a, a sign to, to Russians and indeed to the world that... Um, uh, Putin is perhaps not as well in control as he was. Or wants to distance himself from this defeat. Well, certainly wants to distance himself, um, which <laughs> has been evident for a long time because, of course, if we go back, and it seems an awfully long time now, but we go back to the 24th of February when the uh, invasion started, and this is very much, let, let's be, not be mistaken about this, this is very much his war. This is what he wanted. He started it. His resentment against Ukraine as as a potentially prosperous nation away from Russia and heading towards the West in, in terms of possibly joining the EU, possibly joining NATO. Um, he just he, he has this deep, deep resentment and, and hatred um, of the West and of Ukraine in particular. So it was his idea to go in. And he genuinely thought that within three days he would have taken Kiev uh, you know, he thought that the um, the Ukrainians would not support their government. He thought that uh, uh, that the West would not support Ukraine. That, um, uh, he thought that his army was strong. You know, he's made mis so many mistakes. And even when it came to mobilisation back in September, when they called for mobilisation, he had definitely been holding off on that for a long time because that was a sign of weakness. You know, he thought that the army I had, they can go in, they can do it. And already there were losses. If we again we think back um, in early September, that it was more in the the, the northeastern corner near Kharkiv, um, and into the Donbass, indeed the, the area that um, they invaded in 2014, where Ukraine was making significant gains. And it seems that it was only because the hardliners were pushing him to say we're running out of men, uh, because of course casualties have been. Uh, shooting up. The Americans uh, reckon this week that um, probably 100,000 Russian soldiers have been killed or wounded. Um, same number on the Ukrainian side. But th that wasn't supposed to happen. That, and if we look back to the war in Afghanistan, 10 years war in the 1980s, Russia lost 13,500 dead, maybe about 40,000 casualties totally. So it's already gone way beyond that. Um, and so it, Putin has got this, it's got a problem. Um, however, however he wants to try and play it, however he wants to make, make it seem as if the military are the ones responsible for the decisions, the buck definitely stops with him. Mm. And there's a lot of coverage about him personally uh, in the papers across this weekend. There is, there is indeed, he said, reaching for more papers. Um, the FT, the Financial Times, uh, has 
Obviously, it's got a lot about America, but we've talked about, or you've talked about that. Um, and there's a, a very good um, editorial um, uh, about uh, about no, that's about drones. There, um, let's go on to back to the New York Times because this is it's got a large article um, on an inside page, page four, saying Putin's name is absent as Russians discuss military retreat, and it's got this photograph of him. Uh, taken last month, looking at um, training of some of these new recruits, um, uh, and he he has got Sergei Shoigu there, the defence minister, and two uh, army officers, one of whom clearly from his um, undervest is a an airborne uh, officer, and they're they reckon to be amongst the best troops in in Russia. Um, and he's explaining something to Putin, and, and Putin's sort of standing there, maybe an unfortunate photo, but he looks rather baffled. Um, He's got a sort of blank look on his face and it's almost as if he doesn't really know what's going on around him. I mean, there are lots of reports that he might be ill, that he's spent a lot of time in the uh, in the the presence of his oncologist, for instance, uh, that he is possibly on steroids, his face is all puffy. Uh, obviously, he's not going to last forever. He's not. And he's, he's turned 70 recently and, and um, he... Uh, he, he there are these reports, yes, that he's, that he's not well and so on. Those I'm very sceptical about uh, um, because it seems to me it's like wishful thinking. It wouldn't, wouldn't it be great, and it's an awful thing to say about someone, but it's because, it's because of what he's done to Ukraine, but wouldn't it be great to think that Putin was about to die um, because that would quite possibly bring an end. It would certainly bring, bring a pause to the war um, because, as I say, he's the one who started it off. Um, but I, I just think that... Um, we know very little about what goes on in his immediate vicinity, um, particularly during the pandemic. Of course, he shut himself away, and since then he's narrowed his his circle of uh, of, of close advisors. Um, I, I mean, you know, who is his oncologist? I, I know I I don't know that. Um, we know his face is puffy because for years now he's been doing it. He's been taking Botox to to make him try to look younger. I mean, why anyone takes Botox to look younger? I don't know because it, to me it always looked ridiculous. But um, and he certainly does. If you compare the photos of um, Putin even ten years ago and this sort of puffy faced man now, um, he just looks rather absurd. Um, but yeah, it would be nice to think he wasn't too well and wasn't long for this life. But um, uh, if it happens, I, I'd be delighted to to hold up my hands and say, well, you know, maybe those who said this knew more than I did. But for now, I'm just I'm just wary. I just don't want us to get into this. Oh, you know, Putin's on the way out and Russian forces are being defeated completely. There's still a lot to be done in this war and a lot of support that has to go to Ukraine. Mm, mm. Well, of course, the EU has been voting on this, uh, sending up billions of dollars of, of aid to, to, to Ukraine. Is that enough? Does it need more uh, engagement on the ground? On the ground, of course, has always been, ever since the start of the war, has been the, the difficult one. You know, the, the phrase boots on the ground, meaning soldiers being sent in, troops being sent in, um, that has been seen as, to use that awful phrase, a red line that NATO has realised that if they send troops in uh, actually into Ukraine, then that might give Russia an excuse to say, oh, look, we really are fighting NATO. Um, so financial aid and military aid. and Military aid, I think, is particularly crucial at the moment. Um, we've seen, not this week, fortunately, but in the previous two or three weeks, um, Russian cities, uh, Ukrainian cities being bombarded by 
drones from the Russian side, many of them Iranian-made drones. Um, uh, and so Ukrainians are facing a winter where there will definitely be power cuts and water shortages. Um, and that's a deliberate policy by Russia. That's, that's the spiteful side of all this, that they, they that Putin clearly decided early on when he realised he wasn't going to win quickly that he wanted to wipe Ukraine off the face of the earth. And they've bombarded civilians and they've taken out civilian targets and now taking out power stations and water stations is a d deliberate way of trying to make people suffer. Um, so that that's happening. And, and the West can send air defence particularly to help take down the, uh, the, the missiles and the drones. And Ukraine has actually been pretty successful. Probably at least 50% in total have been shot down. But particularly with these Iranian drones, they can, they're, they're relatively cheap, they've, whether they've been sold or given to the Russians, and they, they're in quite a large number, and they, they can be sent in and more than the air defence can cope with. So the West needs to keep sending uh, military equipment for now. But also, um, the crucial thing is going to be, and I think Western politicians understand this, certainly in Europe, what happens when the war ends. The war is going to end at some point, and Ukraine has suffered such destruction, such damage, um, as well as loss of life, that it's going to lead an awful lot of rebuilding. Now, there's talk of could they have uh, reparations from Russia? Um, that all depends on what kind of Russia emerges from all this. Um, but that money has got to be there. It's also, let's again relate back to, um, to the United States, um, because this is one from the, from the FT. Um, uh, Kiev wary of midterms impact on US aid policy. Now, the fact that the uh, the midterm elections in the in the US have not gone as well for the Republicans and the Democrats have done better is being seen in Kiev as uh, with a certain greeted with a certain sigh of relief because um, the Republicans have been muttering recently that sort of you know we're we giving too much to Ukraine and you know why should we be doing this um, so. Uh, the aid that's been coming from the United States and more has come from the United States than any other single country, to more, more aid to Ukraine, that is crucial. And any idea that this, that, that would be cut back now um, would be a serious setback for Ukraine. Stephen, thank you very much indeed. That was the Russia analyst Stephen Diel and you're listening to Monocle on Saturday. Sit down with a host of inspiring designers and architects featured in Monocle's November issue. They share their thoughts on bright ideas on everything from the future of the office to community-built public design. It's being really clear that we can create the kind of infrastructure to make people feel like, I want to stay here, I want to stay invested here. In the affairs pages, we visit the people and places weaning Europe off fossil fuels, from a booming solar industry in Morocco to an off-grid village in Germany. Elsewhere, it's lights, camera, action in Mexico, where the global streaming wars are heating up and full steam ahead at the world's largest rail fair in Berlin. Order your copy of Monocle's November issue today or subscribe to get instant access online. Finally, on today's programme, we head to Dubai Design Week, which concludes tomorrow. The event, which is now in its eighth edition, is one of the industry's most important events in the Middle East and brings together designers and brands from across the region. Monocle's Grace Charlton is in Dubai and has been speaking to Kate Barry, the event's director. 
So obviously the Middle East has a real energy behind it, but Dubai specifically has such a growing creative community. One, because, you know, naturally the Arab world does have a lot of creativity and it's, it's a culture that's based on storytelling. And I think that, you know, when you look at creativity, that's what it is, right? So it was only a matter of time until the Middle East and specifically Dubai could start to have that moment. And I think that Dubai recovered very well from COVID and the world once again started to look at Dubai in a different way because you could come here, you could be safe. You know, it was a place where the sun is always shining. So it also brought in more and more people and people from all different fields. You can see that here it is a land of opportunity. I think that, you know, there's a lot of job creation that comes from all different sectors, but creativity comes with joy and comes with pain. So some people are coming here to seek refuge. You know, some people are coming here because it's a safe place to be. So, you know, from there you have something like joy and pain. And as we said, that creates creativity. So it could be that, it could be the fact that you have freedoms here. So it's all of this combined together that's driving that momentum. We have a beautiful exhibition inside the downtown design tent. Downtown design is the commercial element of Design Week, which is the business of design. So there you have fantastic designers that do everything from furniture to wall coverings, etc. We have international brands. We have about 200 brands that are participating from all over the world. But within these 200 brands, we have a beautiful space called the UAE Designer Exhibition where we celebrate exactly that. So we celebrate creatives within the UAE that are designing all different elements from furniture to textiles to rugs. And some of them are up and coming, others are more established, but everybody sits together because again, this is a place that is an inspiration to them. And this is in partnership with the Dubai Design District yes. um, in terms of this neighborhood and like how it's also coming along. Can you just quickly talk about that? Definitely. So yes, our we're in strategic partnership with the Dubai Design District, which houses a number of different creative offices. So you have everything from boutique graphic design firms to some of the larger brands, whether it's through LBMH, etc. So everybody's living within the same space. And I think that that's what makes it interesting because it's not categorized per se. You know, you have all different offices next to each other. So in the lift, you know, you bump into all different kinds, including, you know, CEOs of major leading brands. So I think that when everyone sits together, it creates a space that creates more and more discussions or discourse. And, you know, you might be sitting in the cafe downstairs and you're sitting beside a CEO of a major fashion house and you can naturally hear what they're saying <laughs> in most cases. Um, and I think that those kinds of best practices or that kind of sharing is part of what makes the Dubai Design District very interesting. We also are working in partnership with Dubai Culture, which really helps also to foster all of this growth. And, um, you know, I think that Dubai has really committed to this cause. And it's not an easy one because the creative community is a very diverse community, people with all different talents. So, you know, between both Dubai Design District and Dubai Culture, you know, they've again created this beautiful bubble where we could all live in the same space and really be able to communicate on what makes Dubai a special place. A friend of mine actually has a 
design house. And now he's actually exporting outside of Dubai to London, to LA. And he created a, a small label on it that says Made in Fabulous Dubai. <laughs> and I love that. You know, I love the idea that Dubai is nurturing this scene and that it's become something now to say, oh, I got it in Dubai. <laughs> so it's that movement that gets me excited. Having lived here for 15 years, I've seen the building of a new city and um, it's exciting. Nobody is jaded. Everyone gets behind ideas and, and you know, your friends and your family, everyone sort of coexists together and everyone's pushing each other. And I think that that excitement is what makes it so dynamic here. That was Dubai Design Week's Kate Barry in conversation with Monocle's Grace Charlton. And that's all for this edition of Monocle on Saturday. Many thanks to our studio engineer, Nora Hall. Monocle on Saturday returns next weekend and don't forget to tune in to tomorrow's edition of Monocle on Sunday, which airs at 9am London time. Our editorial director, Tyler Brulé, will be your host for that. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.